The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. The government has officially launched its Housing and Homeless Action Plan entitled Rebuilding Ireland. It runs to 114 pages, so I'm hoping that the Minister of Housing, Planning and Local Government, Simon Coveney, uh, can reduce that down for the purpose of this interview. Can you do that, Minister? Uh, I, I hope I can, George. Look, I mean, this is a, this is a very substantial response to, to what is a broken housing market and the consequences of that, which for some people means homelessness. Uh, and so, you know, I've made it very clear, and the, the Taoiseach has backed that up, uh, that housing and fixing the housing market and responding appropriately to homelessness is the number one priority of government. Uh, and so um, we've given a commitment that within the first 100 days of government, we'd produce a plan. Uh, that would attempt to do that, and that's what we launched today. So uh, it's entitled Rebuilding Ireland, uh, which is a pretty lofty title because we're looking to rebuild people's lives as well as uh, rebuild the housing market. Uh, and in simple terms, you know, it's broken down into five key pillars. Uh, the first is homelessness, uh, where we are talking about dramatically increasing the spend in terms of health supports um, for people who are homeless, whether they whether that be addiction management, whether it be mental health, family breakdown. Um, uh, there's a, an increased emphasis on supporting people who are in mortgage arrears, trying to ensure that we can keep them in their homes. Uh, we are revamping what's called the mortgage to rent scheme, which will hopefully allow people who simply can't afford a mortgage any longer to be able to rent in their own homes effectively. Um, but I think most importantly, in terms of families, who are, uh, who are living in totally unsuitable emergency accommodation in, in hotels or B&Bs, uh, we're setting a target of within the next 12 months not having to rely on hotels uh, yeah. as, uh, the, as um, emergency accommodation any longer. So, Yeah, um, okay, Minister, I mean, you actually used the phrase lofty title, and it's certainly got lofty ideals. So therefore, uh, and I, I, I am not cynical about this, I think this is an outstanding a piece of work if it works of course I'd like to ask you a question which you may or may not answer did you specifically want this portfolio because you thought you could actually do something to fix the problem yeah I mean I wanted this portfolio because of what we announced today so you know when I asked right. the Taoiseach uh, I mean I specifically asked the Taoiseach to put me in charge of fixing the housing crisis all right that so is, this is a labour um, of I love it, well I don't know if it's a labour of love, but I mean, I, you know, I was a minister for agriculture for the last five years uh, and a minister for defence as well. I really enjoyed that brief. But, you know, if I look at particular my own, particularly my own age group in Ireland at the moment, the pressures they're under uh, in terms of mortgage arrears, debt management, um, the, the financial debt that, that they have to shoulder, uh, and the pressures that, that a broken housing market is putting on them, uh, some of them Okay. exposed to very, very vulnerable situations. Uh, I wanted to take on the challenge of trying okay. to fix that. Now we've it's got going that. to take time. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, it, 
if you look at what we're committing to do to do here under the second pillar, which is delivering social housing, but we it, are going to. Yeah, can I just just hold you because you're obviously excited about this, but that the, the five pillars you talked about, you mentioned homelessness, and now you want to talk about social housing. You're yeah. going to double the output to deliver twenty five thousand units per annum on average over a period of the plan. In other words. Six years, right? That it, it, that's lofty. How are well, you yeah. going to do it? How are you going to do it? I know you say you will, but how are you going to do it? Well, first of all, I mean, the 25,000 figure is a total new build each year, okay? Um, what we have as a target for new social housing provision over the next six years is 47,000. Uh, and we've got agreement within government to, uh, to spend 5.35 billion euros doing that. So just to put that into context, right? Um, over the next five years, uh, we have um, uh, available resources to spend an extra five billion euros on what is currently being planned. Forty-three uh, percent uh, of that is going to be spent on housing. If you look at next year, we have an extra 250 million euros of capital expenditure to spend on top of what's already been committed. A uh, hundred and fifty of that extra spend will go on social housing. So that's 60 percent. So if anybody was in any doubt as to how serious the government is in terms of impacting uh, in a really significant way on social housing and on housing provision generally in Ireland, you know, just look at the funding commitments that we're giving today because they are very significant. Well, but of course, we, need, yeah. we also need to get the private sector building again. You know, and that, is, that means you know, what we're doing under the third pillar, which is, which is housing supply, uh, is we're going to change the planning system. Uh, we're going to work with the NTMA in terms of new funding models. Um, we are going to um, use state lands much more strategically than they've been used in the past to actually incentivize the private sector to build on publicly owned land and also provide social housing uh, as well as uh, yeah. affordable rental as well as private sector. There are housing. two problems surely you face about building more homes. Um, you, you've mentioned like state land. What state land? I mean like Collins' barracks, or and I'm not trying to be no, funny no. now, but do you know what I mean? Is the, yeah. This is clearly land owned by the state. Well, it's normally owned by local authorities, right? Okay. It's zoned for housing. So, right. you know, if you look at Dublin City Council, if you look at South Dublin County Council yeah. or Dunleary Rockdown, or, uh, you know, they, they all have land banks that they would have built up over the years that are zoned for housing. And now we want to strategically use them to get a significant increase in building activity okay. quickly. Right. And, and the way that one of the big problems at the moment is that the price that a builder can build a house for in Dublin is in and around €300,000. And the, pri the price that a first-time buyer can afford to pay for a house in terms of getting a mortgage is about fifty grand less than that. So, 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 so we have about two-thirds of first-time buyers simply locked out of the market, no new houses being built for them. And so we need to close that gap between what it costs to build a house and what first-time buyers can actually afford to spend uh, through getting a mortgage. And in order to reduce the cost of building a house, we have to look at what currently makes up the cost of a new house. And, and about 40 grand of that cost actually comes from site costs. So, so if, we can, if we can get private developers building on public land, uh, that will dramatically reduce the cost of a house. But also, we can actually get other dividends from those developers. So if we're going to provide land uh, in a cost-effective way, we can certainly ask developers to also build social housing, to also yeah. 
um, pr- provide affordable rental accommodation and so on as part of overall mixed right. development. So, I mean, the big idea here, George, in this plan actually isn't about spending more money or building lots of social houses. Actually, the big idea in this plan is where they will be built. Because what I am determined to do is not to allow a situation like it happened in the 70s and 80s, where we had thousands of social houses built in, in one part of the city, and then we had almost solely private houses built in other parts of cities. Um, and if you look at our own city uh, of Cork, where the vast majority of social housing uh, was built on the northern side of the city, and most of the private housing was built on the south side of the city uh, during a, you know, the period when social housing was actually delivered in big numbers. That has had all sorts of consequences since, since then. So the new houses that we're going to build, the 47,000 social houses extra that we're going to provide over the next six years need to be integrated into private estates. So when you drive into a, house, a housing estate, you can't tell the difference between social housing and private housing. Um, and uh, that takes a change of mindset uh, across society, actually, uh, to try and deal with some of the hang-ups that people have and some of the prejudice that people have. Uh, but I'm determined to try and do that. Uh, that's, that's an even loftier challenge to change social behaviour. Um, I, I mean, neither of us need tell each other knowing about Cork or people who live in Dublin or Galway or anywhere else, major urban centres, that uh, people who buy private houses saying, well, I'm buying a private house and I'm paying a premium because I'm not living next to him. Uh, and whether we like it or not, that that is ingrained in in people's psyche. So that's going to be difficult for you. But I don't want to stay with that because I'll give you a pass that you're going to try it. The builders, though, you have to get the builders aboard. Now, what they're saying, as you rightly point out, it costs 300000 to build. But what they're also saying is they can't get the money to build. So yeah. how are they going to get the money? Okay, well, we're doing a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, builders can get about 50 to 60% of the finance that they need if they have planning uh, and zoning, they can get that from a bank right, at a reasonably competitive cost. The problem is the remaining 40%, uh, which is much more expensive money. They have to get what are called equity funds or mezzanine funding or whatever, which is, which is higher risk and can cost sometimes up to 13 or 14% in terms of interest rates because, because those equity fund companies want their money back faster. Uh, and that is making the cost of financing housing estates much more expensive than it was in the past. And that's factor, partly factored into the cost of the 300000 or, or more. So we have to find ways of um, reducing cost, which we are doing through, through land, but also by the state building more infrastructure to open up sites, the cost of which would otherwise have to be picked up by the developer and put on the, uh, the price of the house. But we're also talking to the NTMA and to ISIS about providing funding for that missing piece that is hugely expensive for developers to actually uh, get funding for at the moment. Sorry, um, Minister, sorry. I wasn't a Freudian slip, was it, ISIS? Yeah, no, it, it, it's, no, it wasn't. That is the um, Strategic Investment Fund, the Irish Strategic <laughs> Investment Fund, which is ISIS. That is true. Okay, Minister, um, sorry. Yeah, Thank no, you I mean, so much. You gave me a slight panic attack. Listen, okay, so you can you can organise the funds. Now, you talked about five pillars. Number one, you're addressing homelessness, and you're going to get people out of B&Bs. You're accelerating, I've already said, the development of social housing. But you're actually going to build more houses for people 
uh, who will eventually get a mortgage uh, to buy them in private housing to go do it. Now, uh, Pillar 4 is a bit tricky. You're going to have to work with the private rental sector at a time when rents are spiralling. How are you going to do that? Well, look, I mean, in my view, we've had a broken rental market for decades in Ireland. So the only people that rented in Ireland were people who couldn't afford to buy or else they were students or else they were in transition. Right? But everybody aspired to own their own home and to take out a mortgage. Most people anyway. Uh, we need to change that. You know, uh, if you live across Europe, lots and lots of people don't want the hassle uh, of taking on the risk of a huge mortgage and a but huge they have debt. Certainty. Sorry to drop, but they have they certainty have, of tenure. They have certainty, exactly. Yeah. Right? So, so what we've committed to doing is between now and the end of the year, we're going to have a full assessment of the rental market and we'll make decisions around issues like security of tenure, uh, rent certainty or rent predictability. Uh, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't frighten off investors either. Right? So at a time when the most important thing is to actually increase supply and get more product built, um, we need to make sure that at the same time we are trying to change a rental market in a way that is in the interests of tenants uh, and landlords uh, as regards the medium and long term. So. For example, we are taking some early actions here. So if one institutional investor sells an apartment complex to another institutional investor, we are ensuring now that we're going to introduce legislation that will protect the interests of tenants and their tenancies. In other words, yeah. they don't, they don't um, uh, because there's a change of ownership of the overall apartment block, they're not going to get their tenancies starting from scratch again, which will facilitate either them being asked to leave or a significant increase in the rent. And I can see um, how you can legislate on that. I get that. However, if I've just spent 500000 on on a, a couple of apartments, I'm now going to be terrified that Simon Coveney is not going to allow me charge an equitable rent for that. No. Um, what we're saying is that the um, tenancies are protected when there's a change, will be protected when there's a chain of ownership, but only for 20 or more apartments being sold okay. together as part of a complex. So, so most landlords in Ireland have one or two or three or five yeah. uh, a, a apartments, and they're in a very different category. What we're talking about is protecting from vulture funds, essentially, okay. uh, right. coming in to buy, to evict, and then to sell on. Uh, that is not the way our rental market should function. Okay. But look, I mean, there's a broader issue here around the rental market. I mean, if you look at what's happened over the last 20 years, we're nearly always either experiencing rapid rental increases uh, in terms of price or else collapses one Correct. or the other. Like the it's Irish boom or bust. It, it, it's boom or bust the yeah. whole time. Right? Yeah. And and my job is is, is to, to build a much more stable construction right. industry and housing market, both for rental and purchase price. All right. But it's much more predictable. My so, guest, as you can, I'm sure, recognise, is Minister Simon Coveney, who's brought out this extraordinary 114-page document, which may, in fact, be the biggest change in Irish housing uh, for uh, as long, uh, for my lifetime, perhaps, even. Pillar 5, though, utilising existing housing. Now, I think the, local, the census, in fact, brought up information about just how many vacant homes, um, the vacant properties is a better word, vacant properties there are. So most of this is in the hands of banks or, or NAMA or whatever. Now, yep. are you just going to buy all this up so that there are suddenly houses available? Some of it, yeah. But I mean, some of it is in, is in private ownership, just not in use. So, you know, we have about 200,000 vacant properties. That's excluding now um, holiday homes. Um, 
across the country. Now, unfortunately, most of them are in areas where there isn't huge housing demand um, in some parts of the Midlands and some parts of the Northwest uh, uh, and Southwest and so on. But there are still significant numbers of them in areas where there is demand. Some of them are in rural towns and villages. Others them other properties are in Dublin city centre. So we need to find a way of encouraging the private sector to invest in properties and, and to bring them back to the market. So one of the things we're going to do is simply copy a scheme that's worked very, very well in the UK, whereby local authorities go to a property owner and say, look, we'll give you five years rent up front now uh, if you use that money to do up your property uh, and take a tenant for the next five years. So in other words, it's the equivalent of giving them a big grant and they'll spend that money. Uh, they'll add value to their homes. They'll get a tenant in place that's stable for the next five years, and then they'll have a property that's much more valuable at the end of it. So, you know, it's a it's an incentive okay. uh, to um, to start uh, looking at vacant properties in a different way and taking taking because at the moment, if you own a vacant property on a street, um, you, you probably don't have the twenty or thirty thousand euro that's needed to actually bring it to okay to uh, to the quality needed to rent it. Um, and so schemes like this will be able to deal with that. The other thing is we're giving a substantial amount of money to the housing agency to purchase vacant properties that are unlikely to otherwise find their way into the market. Uh, again, uh, to try and bring some of those properties right. back into you. Uh, Simon Coveney, there, there is one issue, of course. It's a six-year deal. So even no matter what kind of a majority you had, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily be around for six years. Um, this is going. This is going to be to the job of two governments at least. It is, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we've been working with all of the other political parties. I mean, one of the things in this plan is that we have a very detailed response, uh, recommendation by recommendation, to the all-party Oireachtas Committee's report on housing. So that was published about a month ago, um, and there are, I think, nineteen key recommendations in it. We have a detailed response to each of those recommendations in this plan. And in the appendix of the plan, it, it outlines the response to each of those recommendations. So, you know, what we're trying to do here is bring on board uh, other political parties to support what we're trying to do. So whoever's in government in a few years' time, uh, this plan will continue to deliver to its full potential. Um, and, um, you know, whether it's Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin or the Labour Party or whoever uh, is 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 uh, is involved in the next government. Hopefully, it'll be us. But if it's not, uh, I think we've 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 put a lot of groundwork in to try and make sure that there's broad political support for for what we're doing. Now, of course, there'll be some people who criticise us. You know, if I announce forty-seven thousand new social houses, you know, I'm sure people will say, well, it should be sixty thousand. Um, I mean, you just can't please some no, people. No, you can't. But, but, but I think, I think this it, is a very good start. Yeah. Uh, it's not perfect. I'm sure there are some mistakes in it, and we'll have to correct them. But it is a good start to a total change of pace and priority around trying to fix the very broken property market. And uh, whoever's in government in a few years' time, I hope they'll continue that work. Well, I have to say it's the biggest change in my lifetime. I've rarely seen a document that has attempted to address it. Of course, like all things, the proof of the pudding will eventually be in the eating. But as my guest, the Minister for Housing, Planning and Local Government, Simon Coveney, has said, at least it's a start. We'll wait and see. 53106 for your thoughts uh, on that. And we'll look at all those in a moment. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie What a day. 
Uh, it's been extraordinarily uh, warm, of course. But uh, forget about climate change and all that sort of stuff. There's no doubt there's something special about us, the Irish, uh, when we get one of those really great summer days. And we really uh, all do something about it because it happens so rarely. The first thing we do, of course, is we take our clothes off. And there's no question about that. We take our clothes off. It was really interesting coming here at around 11 o'clock this morning. All the coffee shops had tables there. Everybody's sitting there. And then there was this guy with the Irish Independent. Uh, it obviously has good effects on sun rays, draped over his head as he attempted to drink a coffee. But it's special. There's no doubt about it when we get it. And it really is uh, a once-a-year day. Now, uh, we we do that once-a-year day, and all too often when it happens, whether it's that barbecue, whether it's that uh, staff party or office outing or big golf day, we need the weather. And then so rarely do we get it. So everybody today who's had an event is so blessed. It really is their once a year day. This is my once a year day Once a year day Felt the morning sun I knew that this was my Once a year day Once a year day Even got a kiss from you I feel like hopping up and down Like a kangaroo Jumping fences, climbing trees What pleases me is what I'll do Cause this is a once a year day Once a year day Look at Charlie by the barn kissing Katie's ear. Charlie's wife is fighting mad. But that it's only once a year. Look at Papa Holter Bush claims he's 93, acting like he's 22. He's chasing Sadie up a tree. This is his once a year day, once a year day. Everyone's entitled to be wild, be a child, be a boot, raise a boot. just love that music. If you're wondering where it comes from, it comes from a great musical, sadly underrated in the movies, called uh, The Pajama Game, with Doris Day and a fellow Canadian, I think he was Canadian, called John Wright, who had a wonderful voice. You heard him at the beginning. But it is a once a year day. I mean, tomorrow with luck, you know, with our kind of luck, it'll be raining. And then on Saturday, uh, who... uh, who else would be happening? It'll be raining when I'm trying to go somewhere. But I, I bet my next guest recognised it. At least he's old enough to recognise <laughs> it. It's columnist with the Sunday Business Post, ace broadcaster Tom McGurk. George, I've checked the forecast. There is no rain till next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have five days of Dublin Horseshoe without a single drop-in. Well, that's really interesting because the lovely Ingrid will be at the horse show and so she'll be loving it. Does she not allow you go? No. But you have <laughs> you, your horse will be jumping. Will I'm it? afraid not. No, no, no. no. All right, okay. Uh, all right, now uh, have a listen to Andy Kenny. 
Discussions and negotiations that, that take place over the next period should take into account the possibility, however far out it might be, that the clause in the Good Friday Agreement might be triggered um, in that if there's a clear evidence of a majority of people wishing to leave the United Kingdom and join the Republic, that that should be catered for in the discussions that take place. Well, uh, that was at the Glenty Summer School, Tom, last yeah, night, yeah. where he said to the journalist, I'll only take one question. It's got to be about United Ireland, which is an interesting form of uh, of a relationship with the press. Anyway, what do you think? You've been an expert well, on these of matters. All, first of all, George, the, the McGill Summer School is famous for politicians saying things which they forget once they cross the border from Donegal. Secondly, uh, I suspect that some clever chap on Marion Road has, on Marion Street has come up with this one because what they're trying to disguise the fact is that Brexit is coming down the line and the Irish government will not be at the negotiating table. We will be sitting in the background maybe adding a thought here or there but on the future of this country after Brexit and our entire relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland the negotiation will be done by the United Kingdom and the European Union. Well, what now, about... I don't think, sorry, yeah. George, I don't think our political class quite realised that, or even our media realises that, that our border, hard or soft, our trade, our transportation, whether they'll be tariffs, our citizenship, uh, the, 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 the long history of free movement between the two nations and so on and so forth, that will be decided by the European Union not by the Dublin government. Now, you've, of course, born uh, in, in, in Tyrone and, and covered the whole, so much of the, the Northern Ireland crisis over those uh, terribly difficult years. You know it well. Um, why are me, Al Martin and Andy Kenny talking about border po- po- I think I think, George, they're setting a hair running in the face of Brexit. I think they wanted to to divert the conversation because nobody wants to discuss what the real problem is, that we have completely lost any sovereignty. We have completely lost any independence. We cannot decide any of these things. If the European Union decides to teach the Brits a lesson for leaving, we get it in the neck. If they decide to put a hard border there, we get it. Now, in terms of the North, there isn't a majority for United Ireland. As somebody said to me recently, who wants to be the forty-five, the four and a half thousand person on a waiting list to see a doctor in Dublin? There is no push north of the border to join the South. In fact, if anything, in recent years, the number of Catholic nationalists who don't want to have anything to do with the South has grown. There's a, there's a movement called uh, people who see Northern Ireland as their place rather than the six counties. There, there has been a change, particularly. With, with younger and younger people. So I don't see any uh, immediate desire or claim for a united island. Uh, sorry, Tom. Is it also gener- uh, a question of generations? That we're now looking at a generation who see Northern Ireland in a completely different light from p- particularly your generation and mine, but, but many generations. Of course. Uh, you're looking at a post-Troubles generation. Uh, you're looking at a generation who travel the world, uh, who go to university in Dublin or London or Glasgow or Paris or New York, uh, who, who increasingly Europeanization has that, has that huge effect. I mean, the notion that 
one day they'll all end up sitting on the doll. Anyway, the doll has no power, George. I'm just telling you, the doll won't be able to decide what are the terms we inherit after Brexit. So what is the demand to be part of a Dublin government that doesn't actually have any power? In a curious way, if it's, if it was Northern Nationalists, Kenny is worried about, they actually have more power at the moment within the devolved assembly than they would ever have in, uh, okay. in, in a doll, in the United Ireland doll. Let's talk borders for a minute, right? Because you and I remember three kinds of borders. We remember the original one where there was customs and I decided the border. Remember the trip? A triptych for a motor car. Then we remember the border that was was armed soldiers. Yeah. And now there's a border where you actually can't tell you've crossed it. That's right. But if you think of Calais, Tom, and what the British are doing at Calais to prevent people uh, crossing, surely... Um, Newry or Monaghan or or Letterkenny are are going to be Calais like as far as the British are concerned. Well, I from mean, here. I mean, this raises huge, complicated questions, George. I mean, for example, we will be the start, the springboard, or the starting board for huge numbers of people who may want to get into the UK. No, you know, you, know, you won't have to. You won't have to uh, sit in the camp at Calais you'll get on the bus and don't talk to Newry. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we may have international arrivals trying to use it as a route to get into the UK. So there's going to have to be some sort of a border there. I mean, I presume they could start the border at where you would leave Ireland or leave Belfast and arrive in the United in Great Britain. Uh, you should have customs and emigration there. But surely there's going to be some sort of a border. The next problem arises. According to the Good Friday Agreement, everybody in the island of Ireland is entitled to dual citizenship. So everybody in the north is entitled to an Irish passport, which is an EU passport. So if all those people in the north post-Brexit, who are no longer members of the European Union, get Irish EU passports, will they be able to use them? Will they be entitled to EU benefits? Well, okay, that that absolutely is. There's one other crucial thing, right? Enda Kenny seems to think that he's going to go to his European colleagues and 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 say to them, "Listen, we need a special deal. Will we get a deal?" Do you remember what they said about the banks? Do you remember what they said about the bonds that had to be paid? Do you remember the way the Irish taxpayers have coughed off? Was it nine billion to clear the banks? No, Europe has no mercy, and will show no mercy. And I can tell you, George, that bit by bit, as we go through the Brexit series uh, and uh, the whole diplomacy and interpretation and debates involved with Brexit, more and more people in this country will begin to wonder what we're doing in the European Union in the first place. I mean, I, I admire the Brits who said, we've enough, we're out of here. I'm quite happy to stand up and say that. And I think increasingly, we have a big decision to make. What means more to us? Our relationship with London, our relationship with Brussels. In that, I mean, given that Theresa May, I think, seems to be pushing Article 50, this triggering the mechanism, as it's called, she seems to be pushing that out further and further with, with trying to get Scotland aboard, which I think is an interesting ploy to delay. The closer we get to the triggering mechanism, the more Irish minds will be concentrated, will they not? Of course. 
course, and the more complicated it becomes, and how are we going to represent what we need? We will not be able to participate in these negotiations. We will be able to add our, our, our threepence worth. We'll be able to ask for this, that, or the other. But in the press conference in Berlin last week, Angela Merkel was asked by, by, by I think, I think it was uh, the, the, the Times political correspondent, would there be a special situation for Ireland? Would there be a special relationship? She said, no. It'll be the same for all 27. So in the minds of the most powerful woman in Europe, Frau Merkel, we, our, our problems are the same as, as, uh, as Czechoslovakia's or Romania's in terms of the European Union. That, uh, that is a chilling thought, George Hook. And what was all that marching up and down on Carlos Street a few weeks ago about 100 years of independence? Where has that gone now? What independence do we have now? Well, has it, like, is, I mean, Enda isn't alone in this. Me old Martin uh, and Martin McGuinness, they're all on this border poll stuff. Talk about anything with Brexit, I think. Yeah. I mean, and, and what, I mean, in the middle of the most, the most critical diplomatic crisis we have faced ever, I think, since maybe 1939, 1940 in this state, they're going to have an argument about the United Ireland? I mean, are you serious? Are you serious? And is there some way in which the United Ireland thing might, might influence Brexit? I don't see how it could. Within the Good Friday Agreement, there's an international treaty signed between Britain and Ireland, which covers the, uh, which covers the agreement of Good Friday. There's also an Irish dimension built into the Good Friday Agreement. And I, that one might presuppose free movement between Britain and Ireland back and forth. But if the European Union decides that's not on, that's not on. We are no longer the boss in our country anymore, dear George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, on the issue of Enda Kenny and the United Ireland post-Brexit, uh, one listener says, now we realise why the UK voted for Brexit. It's the only way they can run their own country, and we should do the same thing. To save Europe money, why don't they put the border straight out at Bundoran? I bet if Donegal had voted, they'd happily go north, says Pat in Donegal. And Anne says, um, Anne with an E, Tom McGurk is talking sense, while Anne without an E in Sligo says, a failing politician always looks to create a diversion. And uh, Tom is incorrect, a listener says, in celebrating the ineptitude of Brexit. He's going, uh, he's going the Boris Johnson route. It's actually the fault of our MEP's laziness that the EU is a powerful influence. Fine Gael in particular has, has representatives over there, when uh, over here, when they should be over there. Fawning and idolising Enda is one thing, but staking out claims in Brexit is far more important. Um, Every MEP, and the Irish ones are no better, no worse than the other MEPs in the European Parliament. Um, it's the same for all countries. It's now run by a coterie of bureaucrats rather than uh, the actual politicians. It's a bit really like Dublin City Council. Chief Executive runs everything and the councillors actually have no power. Well, 
it's worth staying up, I have to tell you, for uh, the Republican convention. I've I've stayed up for a lot of them. Um, it's in Cleveland. Um, and uh, the former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. Now, the interesting thing, of course, what happens at this convention is no matter what they think, they're all supporting Trump uh, this week, this week, and so you're going to get all kinds of speeches in favor. Now, Giuliani was famous for making New York a safe place by what, of course, they remember they called uh, there will be no easy way with zero tolerance. But here's what he said about making America safe. We must not be afraid to define our enemy. It is Islamic extremist terrorism. You know who you are. And we're coming to get you. Now, that's the former mayor of New York, in fact, a man who might well have been president. Um, The key thing is here, forget my opinions. This isn't about opinion at all. This is about the Republican convention. When you looked at what they were all waving, huge numbers of people were waving placards, make America safe. Um, So what you're going to see now is you're going to see uh, speakers one after another coming in talking about making America safe in the build-up to the Trump speech. Uh, Because that's what Trump is going to be talking about. It's going to be incredibly interesting. Now, the other thing about yesterday was that either the greatest mistake in speechwriting history happened or coincidence. So what I want you to do here is have a listen to Melania Trump's speech, because, of course, at a previous convention, Michelle Obama had spoken in support of uh, her husband as uh, president of the United States. Here are the two speeches. Let me know what you think. You work hard for what you want in life. You work hard for what you want in life. We want our children and all children in this nation to know that the only limit to the height of your achievements is the reach of your dreams and your willingness to work hard for them. We want our children in this nation to know that the only limit to your achievements is the strength of your dreams and your willingness to work for them. Your word is your bond that you do what you say you're going to do, that you treat people with dignity and respect, even if you don't know them. That your word is your bond, and you do what you say and keep your promise. That you treat people with respect. Now, undoubtedly, um, this is a copycat speech. Despite the huge Republican defense of it, it's a copycat speech. the point here is they're now suggesting, some people, that Melania Trump wrote this speech herself. And the truth of it is, she didn't. It was written by somebody else. And Michelle Obama's speech may have been written by somebody else as well. The thing is, even if Melania Trump wrote this speech, it defies belief that somebody else didn't read it. It defies belief 
that the people around Trump, his his campaign manager, his speechwriters and everybody else didn't look at that. Um, so I think this is very damaging. Uh, but the point is, Melania Trump is not up for election. And that's a key differential uh, in, in this. But what it is demonstrating, but it doesn't matter, because the people who are thinking about this aren't going to vote for Trump in the first place. So the people who will vote for Trump really don't care. But is it a total and utter faux pas? Then it is. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by Fergus Finlay, Chief Executive of Barnardo's, the children's charity, and, of course, columnist at uh, the Irish Examiner. Fergus, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Uh, You're seeing a global failure of politics, are you? I am, George. Um, I think what's happening in the world uh, is very frightening, very alarming, very reminiscent Though I wasn't around at the time uh, of the early 1930s, a world living in fear, um, a common branded enemy, uh, and a number of people um, peddling their way to power based on fear of that common enemy. Yes. Um, so, but you have to accept that there there is an enemy at the gates. No, there is. There is. Uh, there is uh, an enemy at the gates. The ISIS is, the, is an enemy. Uh, ISIS hates the West and wants to destroy the West, uh, and uh, and it is an enemy. I think what bothers me, though, is all Muslims have now become the enemy. That's the brand that has been applied. Okay, um, but, but I read you this morning, and rather than getting into the kind of Muslim argument, the point you were making is there is a hankering uh, for authoritarian government. Isn't that extremely understandable now as it was in the 30s? Not just because the enemy at the gates. Well, it may be understandable, but it's dangerous. And that, that I think, was the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Um, men, men who seek to get elected on the basis of being stronger than the other men, other man, um, are potentially very, very dangerous men, especially when they are men who don't have a clue about the world and who don't have a great deal of interest in the world and who are interested only in using um, the fear that is in people's hearts uh, to try and uh, get power for themselves. And that's what I see in Donald Trump. Um, that's what I saw in Brexit. Um, I understand exactly the reasons why a lot of British people that I know voted the way they, know they voted. But they voted primarily because they wanted the freedom to close their borders. Um, and that's an illusion, um, and, and it's a very dangerous illusion. But hold a while now, Fergus, let's take that. It was peddled to them. All right, hold a while. Let's take Ireland, you know, which both of us are fairly familiar with. <laughs> I happen to think we are one of the great democracies. So most say, when you think of how we came out of the civil war and when people expected more mayhem, we got real stable government. Um, people thought the handover from the old Common Gael government to the new Fianna Fáil government would be a recipe for disaster. It wasn't, and so on, so on, so on. But what we now have 
is a fractured political system because all kinds of people told all sorts of stories to the electorate, which had nothing to do with Muslims or Brexit or borders and everything else, but they peddled them uh, hopes and, and visions that were illusory. Yeah, people made promises they couldn't keep, and they paid a very heavy price for that. Um, and what used to be the case in Ireland, though, was uh, you throughout the government and you elected the opposition. Um, what is now the case in Ireland is that we threw out the government. Uh, that was our choice. We decided that they had broken their promise to us and we punished them. And that's our choice and our right to do. And we elected in its place um, something that really, really struggles to call itself a government uh, and, and is going to find it very difficult to function as a government. And there's every possibility, I think, that it will be replaced uh, in turn by something slightly more extreme. Um, both, both, you know, there, there, isn't, there doesn't appear to be the same room or scope in Ireland for extremist politics as there is in other parts of the country. But if you look at what's happening in France now, you look at the way in which the French people have quite rightly been terrorised and terrified, um, uh, and 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 are now blaming their government for that. Um, the, the you know the reaction to the prime minister and the president of France uh, in the wake of what happened, the dreadful things that happened in Nice, um, uh, was was instructive. It was it was instructive and it was frightening. And the the reality though is the thing we now know arising from Nice is that. All you now need to commit uh, a terrorist act, apart from a deranged mind, is the set of keys. Um, you know, terrorism has become almost mundane uh, in in the easy in the ease with which it can be applied. And what frightens me is that the only bulwark against terrorism at the end of the day is democracy. Um, and I know that sounds like a cliche, and I know that sounds like you know slightly old-fashioned, um, but. You know, I, I have believed all my life and all my adult life that um, if we allow democracy to be corroded and if we allow it to be devalued, um, we will be much, much, much worse off for it. So you you don't believe uh, in a benevolent despot then, no? There's no such thing as a benevolent despot. It's an, opti- an oxymoron, like military right. intelligence. <laughs> yeah, um, go on. It's, uh, it, it, there's no such thing as a benevolent despot. The only type of leader that is acceptable in the modern world is a leader that can be the choice of the people and can be replaced by the people. You know, we had a very, very brief experiment in Ireland with a leader who sought very hard in a variety of covert and not so covert ways to subvert democracy in Ireland. Um, and our system, thank God, uh, saw through that and got rid of them. Um, uh, but I really worry about what's happening in the States now. I really worry about, uh, you know, the, the promises that are being made, the fear that is being fomented, the hatred that is being peddled, um, and, and the consequences of all that. Uh, but they, they, you think I'm probably uh, peddling that kind of hate, don't you? No, I don't. I don't. I, I know you well enough, George, to know that you're not a hater. Um, I think you you uh, have a fear, which I think you've allowed uh, to overcome you to some extent. Um, I think you've got it out of proportion. But I understand entirely the fear of the other. Um, you know, like it was the fear of the other that led to the Holocaust. And we, we have to... That's dangerous, Fergus. You can't compare what you can't compare what we're facing now to the Holocaust. 
I'm not trying to compare it. What I'm saying is that in the early 1930s, um, the, the, the leadership of Germany identified a common enemy, put a brand on it, um, blamed that common enemy for everything that had happened to Germany since the end of the First World War, uh, and ended up uh, imposing a final solution on it. Now, you, you now have a situation in the world where uh, there are leaders who are branding all Muslims the same. All Muslims must be banned from the United States, etc., etc. Uh, and they're going further, all Hispanics, you know, all Mexicans. Um, and uh, when, when, when people try to, to, to build hate against a common enemy, and when the rest of us aren't strong enough in the face of it, and that's the other side of my argument, I mean, I've been a social democrat all my life. I used to think of myself as a socialist, but I'm probably a democrat first and foremost. Um, and the failure of social democracy, in you know, as I approach old age, is one of the saddest things around. There are no voices of coherent, credible, attractive voices of so let's and moderation. Uh, all right, but let's take back. some examples. I mean, just look what's happening to the British Labour Party. My God. Yeah, but let's take some coherent Irish examples, for instance. Um, suggestions made by a member of the Social Democratic Party on, on Twitter this morning to me, essentially saying that if somebody arrives at your door and says, hello, I, I, I am, I'm a victim of torture, we should actually allow that person in without any investigation. Because otherwise, the whole idea of, of, of direct provision and saying, OK, we're going, you're going to stay here until we're happy that you are who you say you are, you're, we're not seriously suggesting that we just remove the passport officials from Dublin Airport, are we? Well, I don't know who your interlocutor on Twitter was. Um, I'll I, I just tell you what I believe, George. Um, no, but do I, you I, think I, we should take away... I, I'll tell you what I believe. I be, I've believed all my life in an open uh, and compassionate immigration approach to immigration. And I think our approach to immigration for many, many years has been quite shameful. We applied an immigration policy in Ireland that was designed to keep Ireland white and designed to ensure that nobody would ever come in who would be a drain on the state. And we, we've modernized that a little bit. But I do not believe, and I've never believed, in an immigration policy free of control. The most compassionate immigration policy in the world has to have some limits. You can't overburden the country. You can't ask the country to do more than it is capable of doing. And you can't run risks. If somebody knocks on my door and says, um, I, I'm, I'm a fugitive from torture, uh, let me in and put me up. Um, I, I hope I would give them a meal and facilities for a shower, but I'd also make all the right phone calls. I wouldn't accept, I wouldn't uh, assume that I was always being told the truth in those, in those kind of situations. And you have to do that. You have to investigate. Well, where do you stand? Know. Where do you stand, for instance, in this new authoritarian uh, world that we live, hopeful world that, that people want? The Minister of Justice said she will deport anybody who she believes gives succor uh, to ISIS, uh, even though the evidence might stand not stand up in a court of law? Well, uh, wouldn't you? If you were the Minister for Justice and you had reason to believe that somebody was uh, supportive of uh, terrorist um, activity, wouldn't you want to deport them? And, and under our system, they can be deported. Like, it doesn't make any sense for you know, the kindest, warmest, most compassionate person in the world 
uh, to allow somebody into the country if they believe they are a threat to the rest of the people in the country. Um, but so you're, but you and I are are not. Um, the, the problem, George, I think, is that you and I disagree about one thing, which is that you tend to think, you tend to operate on the basis. I, sorry, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But everything I've heard you say would suggest to me that that you believe that we should shut the doors no. and only open them a crack at a time. Whereas I believe we should make people welcome but investigate. But I believe we should make people uh, welcome but investigate. Good. But like, well, then I no, but 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 how do we investigate when we don't have Arabic speaking uh, policemen? When we when when people come from countries where false passports are endemic, oh, we yeah. we have well, to that's have. One of the great weaknesses. That's one of the great weaknesses, and it's not an Irish problem. Um, I mean, it, it was very clear in the aftermath of uh, the the, the Bataclan terrorist attacks uh, in in France, for example, that French intelligence was. Ex- extremely poor at sharing information. Uh, there were people wandering around Europe who were wanted men, uh, wanted terrorists, uh, and, and police authorities and security authorities weren't talking to each other. It is an unfortunate reality of our lives that intelligence has to be much, much better, much more cooperative, uh, and that authorities... I mean, the Minister of Justice in Ireland ought to be able to pick up the phone to an intelligence authority anywhere in Europe and say, what do you know about this person? Um, and at the moment, that is not the case. So that is a fundamental weakness. There's no doubt about that. But if we get back to authoritarian, let me give you another kind of example of authoritarian. Um, when when World War Two broke out and and Britain was left alone uh, because the French had surrendered and so on, so on, so on, you had in effect an authoritarian government headed by Churchill. There weren't any dissenting voices. Um, yeah. It was a national government, but he decided, you know, they had the they they had the German yeah, code. Yeah, and, 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 so and the Labour Party was in the government, and you yeah. know, the opposition was in the government, and, and so on. But what did the people do the minute the war ended, George? What did the people decide to do, and what were they free to do the minute the war ended? They threw Churchill out because they because they were no, but they were safe. They were safe. Yeah, so I have no problem. The war was over. The throw war them was out. Over. Throw them out when you're safe. But when you're not safe, maybe you have to do something else. I'm not sure what the something else is. I wish I was as certain as a lot of people. I'm and, not I'm not sure. But nobody is nobody's certain. <laughs> we can't be certain, unfortunately. The only thing I think you can be reasonably certain about is that when Churchill was thrown out, he accepted that was the will of the people and he left immediately um, in the way that British Prime Ministers do. Um, I am wish I was as certain that when Donald Trump is thrown out, he will be as gracious as Churchill was. Uh, as, as you might say, George, you've known Winston Churchill. I don't think Donald Trump is any Winston Churchill. Uh, the only problem is, I think the odds on President Trump are getting better by the day. Neither of us are betting men, but maybe we should have ten euro. Um, I, I, I'll have a leap with ten euro on that with you. I, I, um, I, I think I don't want to live in a world that has Donald Trump as president. Um, okay. Uh, and I think um, I, 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 I place all my hope in his capacity to continue making such a fool of himself that even his most loyal supporters will begin to see through. Okay. I mean, at the moment, you're looking at a Republican convention where the bulk of the leadership of the Republican Party may not be being widely reported, but the bulk of the leadership of the Republican Party has simply decided not to bother going. 
Bob Dole isn't there, the Bushes aren't there. Uh, yeah. You know, all all sort of the big wigs of the party have decided not to go. Um, so I'm, I have I derive some hope in that. All right, we we wait and see. Fergus Finlay, Chief Executive at Bernardo's, and of course you can read him on a regular basis in the Irish Examiner.